Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you so much for this hour that these women have, these two hours that they have set aside for the main purpose of studying your word. Of course, there's always the joy of fellowship, but the sole purpose is to study your word so we get to know you better, so we can serve you better in the time that you have allotted for each of us on this earth before we join you forever in eternity. Thank you for your word, that it is eternal, that it is God-inspired, divine-inspired. Every jot and tittle of it is inerrant. It is the truth in whole, from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't just contain truth. It is the truth. It is the word of the living God. Thank you for it. Thank you that even though the grass might wither and these beautiful spring flowers will fade, Your word does not ever fade. It is eternal. And I imagine we will be looking at it throughout eternity. That's exciting because we cannot plummet its depths in this life. We just don't live long enough. And I guess we're not smart enough to plummet all of its depths. It's just endless like you are. It is eternal. Thank you also for the living word, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made our salvation possible and put a new song in our hearts and on our lips, even praise unto our God forever and ever. Just go before us now. Help us to focus on what you have to say. Help the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight because we want to lift up you and you alone. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So the plagues are over. The tenth plague of the deaths of all firstborns without lamb's blood sprinkled or painted or brushed on the doorposts of their homes was, we could say, the straw that broke the camel's back. That's a funny expression. I wonder where it came from. But it was the straw that broke Pharaoh's back because he finally consented to let Israel, God's firstborn son, Israel, depart from his land to serve their Lord. And we are told, if you'd open up to Exodus 12, we're going to start at verse 37. If you look at that verse, we are told, and we discussed this before, there were about 600,000 men in the Exodus. And those who do the calculations have figured that since there, this um, doesn't include the women and the children and teenagers up to the age of 20, that would, I mean, teens. <laughs> um, they counted an adult from 20. So it doesn't include women, children, teens, or the elderly. Plus, the figure doesn't include the mixed multitude of Gentiles who accompanied them. They figured that it was roughly around 2 million people. Could have even been more than that. Somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. That's a big caravan, isn't it? <laughs> And this massive caravan of people departed from the city of Ramesses. And that's in verse 37 as well. And we know because of 13 verse 4 that they left on Abib 15, the day after the Passover, which is now called Nisan 14. Ramesses, that city, was located in Goshen where the Hebrews lived. 
It was located there. It was one of two cities that they had built with their own slave labor for the Egyptians. And we had learned that back in chapter 1, verse 11. They had built Ramesses and another city called Pithom or Pithom. Now, while the Egyptians were grieving, and of course every Egyptian family, unless they put the blood on the doorposts of their homes, was in grief because they had lost their firstborns. While they were grieving and while they were preoccupied with burying all their dead firstborns, the Israelites with their flocks and their herds and the mixed multitude made their way to Succoth. That's also in verse 37. Now, the location of Succoth has never been definitively determined. You'll find it on a lot of maps. If you, if you go on Google or however, if you get a Bible map book and you look at maps of the Exodus, you'll find Succoth all over the place because they're not really sure where it was. You'll find a lot of different crossings, also crossings of the Red Sea, but we'll get to that later. Because the word Succoth actually means resting place, you know, the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, that means like the Feast of Resting Place because they would rest in the booths and the tabernacles. So because that's what the word means, some believe that it wasn't actually the name of a place, but it was merely the spot where they first rested, their first encampment. And that makes sense. So maybe that's why the archaeologists have never found it. Well, the sojourn of the children of Israel had come to a total of 430 years. That's in chapter 12, verses 40 and 41. Abraham and his descendants had lived 430 years as nomads. That means that they were without a homeland. They had been promised a homeland, the land of Canaan, by God, but they did not yet possess it. And it would be another how many years before they actually would possess it? No, 40. Another 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they did. And the only reason for that is because of their own lack of faith in God to help them conquer the Canaanites. They could have gone from uh, from Egypt to Canaan and avoided that detour. That was a long detour. Uh, But they didn't have faith in God. So they had another 40 years. Now, although they were still homeless at this point in time, at least they're free now. They're free people. And as they went out from the land of Egypt, which is a phrase repeated 56 times in the scripture. Why do you think that is so? God really wanted them to remember that they went out from the land of Egypt because of his delivering power. He didn't want them to forget that. Well, then in Exodus 12, verses 43 to 51, the Lord, we find, gives Moses and Aaron some Passover regulations that were necessary, would be necessary in the future because of the mixed multitude of Gentiles who went out with them. So the Lord made it clear that in the future, if those Gentiles wanted to participate in Israel's memorial Passover victory celebration, They needed to demonstrate their faith in him by identifying with his covenant people. And they would do that by being or by having their sons circumcised. So that's what that bit of the passage is all about. I'm not going to dwell on that. 
Then in verse 46, for the very first time, we had discussed this, but actually for the first time in the written record, we learn of the Lord's command for not a single bone of the Passover lamb to be broken. So, that seems like a minor thing, but it was important. Because if the Lord Jesus had not died or given up his spirit at 3 p.m. on Nisan 14, the day of the Passover, what would the Roman soldiers have done to him to speed up the death process before 6 p.m. when the sun went down and it became a holy Sabbath because it was the first day of unleavened bread. Friday was a holy Sabbath. They couldn't do any work on that day. And then Saturday was the regular weekly Sabbath. So there's going to be two Sabbaths in a row that week. Because I believe he died on Thursday. But if he had not given up his spirit at 3 p.m., they would have broken his legs like they did with the thieves on either side of him. Now, if they had broken the Lord's legs, it seems kind of petty, but it would have disqualified him from being the absolute true Passover lamb of God. Do you know that? That Even, it's amazing, even after he finished the atonement work, because he said, Te Telestai. I want that entombed on my, on my tombstone. Te Telestai. It's my favorite word in the whole Bible. What does it mean? It is finished. He even finished the work, but if a bone had been broken, he would have disqualified. That's pretty amazing to think about. So this is an important, because every word that the Lord predicts has to come to pass exactly as he predicted, or he isn't God. So, and it, and it was, it was. And they, I, I said yesterday too, that the Romans had perfected the art, if you call it an art, of crucifixion so that they could actually pass those big nails into the, the victim's wrists and feet without breaking a single metatarsal. I don't know how they did that, but they didn't break a single bone of his hands, wrists, or feet. That's all I'm going to say about the rest of chapter 12. Let's move on to chapter 13. In chapter 13, Moses addressed the people about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they were to, to commemorate once they came into the land. Once they came into Canaan, they were to begin to um, you know, celebrate these two feasts every year. Uh, and he repeated some of the specifics that we have already discussed, like, you know, not to eat leavened bread for the seven days following the Passover, which were the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He discusses in those verses, uh, the beginning verses, some of the specifics about, not, you know, making sure they removed every little scrap of leaven in their homes, spring cleaning, uh, he also explained that the feasts were to be used to teach the next generation and the generation of that, you know, each generation is to teach and pass on to the next one the importance of, um, of the Exodus, how God had displayed his mighty power in redeeming Egypt. And that, of course, resulted in her release from bondage because the next generation, if they haven't participated in something, they are so quick to forget. And, you know, they don't understand the significance of things, do they? That's why it's so important. I think it's wonderful what they did. The Jews, you know, would teach the young people through the Passover Seder. We should have more of that going on in our churches you know, gathering the whole families together and teaching them the significance of all these things. And, of course, as God does, he always uses pictures, doesn't he? 
you know, the lamb shank bone and the mots, and all of it is pictures of, of things so that children can learn and remember better. Well, he said that the Passover and the unleavened bread were to serve as a sign for them. The celebration of those feasts and the other five that he would later give was to be a remembrance sign on Israel's corporate forehead and hand so that she would never forget what the Lord had done for them. He repeats that in verse 9 and again in 16. It's like a sign. Now he's speaking symbolically here. In other words, it's like putting a sticky note on your forehead. Don't forget what God did, you know, and we won't forget because we'll commemorate these feasts or putting the sticky pad. You know, when you were in school, didn't you write little, well, we sometimes we still do it, write little notes on our hands. Don't forget the egg and bread, you know, (laughs) and the milk at the grocery store. I hope you didn't do it to cheat on the test like some of the boys did. (laughs) Um, But that's what he's talking about. It'd be like a sign. So you'll remember, but just like people do with when the Lord said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's speaking symbolically about partaking, you know, in taking him personally. Um, The Pharisees took this literally. So what did they create? Things called phylacteries, little boxes that they made and they'd put a parchment of a piece of scripture in the box and then they'd tie it to right between their eyes on their forehead with a piece of leather and they'd walk around with the phylacteries on their head because they'd take this passage and another one in Deuteronomy literally or they'd tie it with leather on their hand now they must look pretty silly walking around with a box on their head their head I should think (laughs) might obstruct your vision a little bit but uh Uh, They had another problem because they would close their eyes whenever a woman was coming toward them. So they were always walking into things anyway. But they did that. And remember Jesus, (laughs) Jesus pointed out their hypocrisy because uh, many of them had enlarged their phylacteries. So they were big boxes. You know, it's like the bigger your box on your forehead, the more pious you are. And he was pointing out how hypocritical they were. I did throw in, you know, the whole theme of the book of Exodus is deliverance redemption remember that did you know that the noun the hebrew noun for deliverance is yesh y-e-s-h which happens to be the root of the hebrew name for jesus what is jesus's hebrew name yesh Yesh. so what does his name mean the deliverer the savior once the jews reached the land he goes on to say in verse 11 that once they reached the land of promise They were to set apart unto the Lord every firstborn son and male animal. Now, he had redeemed them. He had spared them from death through the Passover. You know, he passed over them if they had the uh, blood on their doorpost. So he's saying they are mine now. All firstborn sons here he's talking about and even male animals. The firstborn of both man and beast had been his gracious recipient. So he was going to use them to be his priesthood. And that would be the firstborns from every one of the 12 tribes were to be the priesthood. Just like today, the church, the whole church, we are a royal priesthood. Well, he was, he didn't intend for there just to be one tribe that was a priesthood. He intended for his priesthood to come from all 12 tribes. So when a son, firstborn son was born, he was dedicated to the Lord, okay? Because he belonged to the Lord. Well, what happened 
when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and saw what was going on with the creating a blasphemous creation of the golden calf and the people were dancing and worshiping it. Terrible. And of course he broke the Ten Commandments. <laughs> but at that point then he gave a little speech and he was really angry and he said, well, who was on the Lord's side? And there was only one tribe that came forward because God gave a very difficult commandment. The tribe that came forward in answer to who was on the Lord's side was the tribe of Levi. And he said, go throughout the camp and kill with the sword anyone who will not turn from their idolatry. And I think like 3,000 men were killed, people were killed. And the Levites did that. So because of that, because they were the only ones that came forward, the Lord gave them, instead of the other firstborns, he gave the whole tribe the privilege of being the priesthood. Now there were some negatives because they never owned any land and they didn't inherit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What is interesting, and I had forgotten about this till I got out my own book and started reading it, but you know when the Lord Jesus was 40 days old, his parents took him to the temple for the very first time. And that of course is when he was recognized by two older people. Anna and Simeon. Well, they went to the temple for two rituals that needed to be performed according to Old Testament law. One was that Mary needed to be purified. After having a baby, the, the mother would have to be, she'd have to wait 40 days for a boy or 80 days for a girl before she was purified. She would go to the temple and offer a lamb as a sacrifice for her purification ceremony. If they were too poor to afford a lamb, they could offer two turtle doves or a pigeon. And it says, it talks about the turtle doves and the pigeon because Mary and Joseph were very poor. So they offered either one, I don't know which one they did, the turtle doves or the pigeon. It's interesting because she would not have been allowed to go into the temple and worship until she was cleansed and yet she was holding the temple of God in her arms, wasn't she? Well, the second ceremony was to redeem Jesus from the firstborn. That's what they would do for every son that wasn't a Levite. They would redeem him. And it says, I don't, I can't remember. I think it's in numbers somewhere that they were to pay five shekels of silver to redeem their firstborn son back. So, you know, that he wouldn't be in the priesthood. Well, it, sa- it talks about the turtle doves and the pigeons, but there is no mention that Mary and Joseph paid the five shekels of silver to redeem Jesus from the the priesthood of God. Well, why would that be? They might not even have had the five shekels and just didn't do it, but God knew what was going on. His son was not going to be redeemed from the priesthood because he is the great high priest. You know, he's of even greater than the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood because he's from the Melchizedekian priesthood. Anyway, what is interesting is that here he was 40 days after his birth and he began his ministry, his great high priestly ministry for Israel at 40 days after his physical birth. Fast forward 40 days after his spiritual birth, when he resurrected from the tomb, he began his high priestly ministry for his church so there's a connection with the 40 days on either end of of his story so and that all ties in with exodus it all began with exodus chapter 13 well then we find out in verse 19 and we knew this because we discussed it that moses took with him the bones of joseph (laughs) because that had been joseph's dying request that when they returned 
they would take his coffin with them so that he could be buried in the promised land. He was a man rightly deserving of great respect and honor by the Jewish people, the Israelites. And uh, his request was fulfilled because for 40 years they carried that coffin around with them. And uh, that was the longest funeral procession ever, <laughs> 40 years. But he, he finally got buried in the land of Canaan. But all, during that whole time, all those years, they were constantly being reminded that God would, he did promise them the land. And Joseph firmly believed that he, they would get the land. And so they had to cling to that promise. And that coffin was a reminder. Yes, you have solid rock faith like Joseph did. We will eventually get there. I saw a cartoon this past week while I was researching. And it had a picture of Moses and Aaron on the sandy desert. And they had this big map in front of them. And Aaron, in the little caption, it says, Moses! For 40 years, we've had this map upside down. <laughs> it sounds like me <laughs> when I'm trying to read a map. You know, in the old days, we had the big maps. You're driving along and you're unfolding the map and you're trying to figure out where you are. GPS is much easier, isn't it? Speaking of maps, the shortest route to Canaan from Egypt was through territory. Uh, it was, definitely wasn't the way they did go, uh, but it was through a territory that was occupied back in those days by the Philistines. If you get out your map now and you look right there at the southern end of the beautiful Mediterranean Sea, underneath it I've got the words the way of the sea. It was called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. It was also where the Philistines lived. It was a great highway. I mean, it had, even had a a, a, a view of the Mediterranean. If you've ever seen the Mediterranean, it's like the bluest water I've ever seen. It's just gorgeous. And so you could walk along the Mediterranean. And if they had taken that route, <laughs> it was about 200 miles from Goshen over to Israel, it would have taken them less than a month to get there. Now, they weren't real fast travelers because they had children and they had livestock and they had elderly people, you know, so they didn't move at a great speed. But still, they could have gotten there as opposed to 40 years. They could have gotten there maybe in 20 days. I don't know, but less than a month. Uh, but they didn't go that way because who was leading them as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night? The Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ was leading them. And he did not take Israel on the shortcut to the promised land. Instead, he led them south. Really strange. He led them down into the Sinai Peninsula to the east. Why in the world did he do that? Well, one reason he did that is because he did not want his people to encounter confrontations with the Philistines or with bands of Egyptian guards who were stationed at many outposts along that route. He didn't want them to face any kind of a battle at all because they weren't prepared for battle. They had many women and children and elderly with them. And if they had encountered some kind of an enemy, they probably would have scurried back to Egypt. And uh, so that their women and children and elderly wouldn't die in a battle. So he led his people in the direction direct 
exactly opposite from what I am sure they expected. Does the Lord work that way with you and I? Does he sometimes take us in a direction that is completely the opposite from what we were thinking and what we had planned? You know, maybe some kind of major detour. I studied since the time I could remember, I wanted to be a teacher. I was like this old and I wanted to be a teacher. So that was my focus all my life. You know, I wanted to be a teacher. I want to teach little kids. And then when I got married and I, I, you know, got my degree and all that stuff. And my dad didn't think women should be educated. So I, I even worked my way through college working, you know, babysitting money and all kinds of stuff. I had like two or three jobs at a time to work my way to get that degree. And then I got married and I came down to North Carolina and I had a son within a year. And I'd never taught children after that. I only taught for two years, second grade. And I thought, oh, that's all, you know, it's a de- big detour. But did he, have, did he use my degree? Yes, I'm teaching, cho- I'm teaching children. <laughs> We're all children at heart, aren't we? <laughs> but he does that. Sometimes he'll take us in a direction. I didn't ever think I'd come to North Carolina <laughs> from Chicago. But, uh, you know, that's the way he works. He had reasons. It was certainly the long way to Canaan, definitely. And it was very rugged terrain as well. Well, another reason for uh, leading Israel south is found in 14.4. The Lord told Moses that he had taken the southern route into the Sinai in order to bait Pharaoh. And it worked. Because when the king of Egypt learned that the Hebrews were in the wilderness with their map upside down, he figured that they were evidently directionally challenged. Any of you like that? I am. I am definitely directionally challenged. I, if we go to a new place, I'll say, now let's see if the sun isn't out. Now, if the sun's out, I usually have a hint. But I'll say, that's probably north. And my husband said, no absolutely the opposite that way <laughs> so i would be like moses i'd be lost in the desert but the lord did this on purpose well king the king hears about it and he decides they don't know what they're doing they're going to get themselves trapped down there in the rugged wilderness and so he decides to come after them you knew he wouldn't keep his promise didn't you so he and his servants not only he but his officials also uh, had second thoughts about the wisdom in having released such a valuable economic resource as a two million strong slave labor force. They said, we should not have done that. Now who's going to build our pyramids? Now who's going to build our tombs for us and our cities? That was dumb. We need to go get them back. And so he took his chariot army of 600 chariots and his horsemen, and they went in hot pursuit. Another reason for the long route is that after centuries in Egypt, much of it spent in forced slavery, the Israelites were not unified as a nation. Rather, they were a loosely confederated group of tribes. And their tribes, you know, tribe of Reuben, tribe of Levi, Simeon, etc., they, um, they were ruled, each tribe was ruled by elders. So before she would be ready to enter into the promised land and conquer the Canaanites who dwelt there, she needed to really get to know God 
And she really needed to learn to know how to submit to God and uh, to submit to his leaders, his chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron. Israel needed to, to learn how to work together uh, under the leadership of those two men. You know what? They needed to mature. They had just been born out of the womb of Egypt. They needed to mature. They needed to be in God's school of hard knocks for a while, 40 years. <laughs> there is no shortcut to maturity, is there? There isn't. I wish there was so I could just, you know, boom, make my children mature, boom, make my grandchildren mature. Um, but it doesn't work that way. Boom, make me mature. <laughs> you, you were waiting for that, right? <laughs> oh, you're so mature. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, the good news is that the Lord did not deliver Israel from her bondage in Egypt just so then he could leave her on her own. Aren't you glad he never leaves us nor forsakes us? Aren't you glad that when he delivers us from our bondage to sin, that he doesn't just say, okay, I did my part, now you're on your own for the rest of your life down here. He didn't do that with Israel. She was set free for his divine purposes to serve him, to bring him glory, to be his witness to the rest of the world, to enter the world through her, right? Uh and uh, so he was going to be with her to make sure she would fulfill her purposes. Also, he had made a promise to her. He had made a promise that she would enter into the promised land. So he needed to be there. He would continue to guide her. He would be with her. His presence was with her throughout the 40 years of her wilderness journey. He would guide her and he would teach her along the way so that she would fulfill his purposes primarily uh, to bring him glory. She didn't do too well on that, but, you know, all you can do is teach. If the people don't learn, <laughs> that's their problem, right? Now, one important lesson that Israel would learn is that deliverance from bondage does not necessarily mean deliverance from difficulties, mm, does it? Not at all. Well, Pharaoh, his horsemen, his chariots, and his army didn't take them long to overtake Israel because they could move at a much faster speed than that caravan. And when they did overtake her, she was encamped by the sea, and that would be the Red Sea, beside Pihaharoth before Baal Zephon. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Verse 9, that's where she was located. Now we're going to talk about the location of the Red Sea crossing. There are three main views that I accept. I, there's a lot of views about where they cross, but many of them are made up by liberals who do not believe in the supernatural, and therefore they create these little marshy places where they just walked across. They call it, I don't even go with that sea, uh, sea of the Reed Sea instead of the Red Sea, because the reason they go with that Reed Sea is they said it was just full of reeds, and they marched across, you know, in the reed, and so they make up this little place and that little place where it's not very deep. Um, the problem with that is uh, how in the world then did Pharaoh's complete entire army and all the horses and the chariots drown if it was just marshy little shallow place with reeds in it? Terrible swimmers, weren't they? 
horses too. I mean, all of them. Uh, that's just, that's foolish. Uh, you, you know, it takes more faith to believe the liberals than it does just to believe the truth. So there's three main views um, by conservatives who do believe in the supernatural. The first view is that they crossed over at the very north part of the, um, the, the Gulf of the Suez. You know, the Red Sea consists of two forks like this. This one uh, on the left is called the Gulf of um, the Suez. And this one on the right is called the, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. Well, if you look at your map just below where they have Sukkoth there, that is the, the northern part of the Gulf of the Suez. And this is where some say that they crossed. Um, but if you look at that, that really seems kind of silly. Why would they bother to go across when they could just go around? You see that? <laughs> Why would they cross that little top at the part when they could just go around? Um, and even if they did, if the Israelites did cross there, they would still be well within the area of Egypt because Egypt back then owned the whole Sinai Peninsula. That was all Egyptian territory. It didn't, Egypt's territory did not end until you get over to the Gulf of Aqaba. And if you cross that, then you're in Midian which is today modern-day Saudi Arabia, or you cross up north of the Gulf of Aqaba, you would be in today modern Jordan, or even nor more north, you'd be in Israel. You see that? But Egypt owned all the way to the border with Israel and the Gulf of Aqaba. So even if they crossed, and, and also it'd be silly because Pharaoh and his army, could, they wouldn't have to cross and do what the Israelites did. They could just run around the border there and meet them when they came across the other side. You get it? Because there's land right there. So most people don't go with that. was popular at one time. Most people don't go with that Gulf of Suez anymore. Another view is that they crossed at the Straits of Tehran. You can't see this on the map, but where the two... Uh, points uh, where the two parts of the Red Sea join down here at the point of the Sinai Peninsula, there is what is called the Straits of Tehran, southeast point of the Sinai Peninsula. And they say they crossed way down there. Well, that theory doesn't really work in that Israel would not have been boxed in between Pharaoh's army pursuing her and the water. Because if you get, if you can, and you can do this, you can Google all these sites and you can see that location. And there are many possible escape routes from the Straits of Tehran, where as they see Pharaoh coming, people could have taken off this way and that way, and, you know, all different directions. They weren't between a rock and a hard place. They weren't between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. You get it? They weren't boxed in. Um, and the Lord's pillar of cloud stood between the two camps, which means that there was only one land escape, and, uh, and, and Pharaoh was on the other side. So there, wherever they crossed, there was only one path to where they were, and the Lord filled that way with his presence, with the cloud, the pillar of cloud. Also, if you get a map and you see the Straits of Tehran, there are a lot of islands down there. So it would have provided rescue for at least some of Pharaoh's soldiers 
because there was a bunch of islands. So if they, you know, suddenly the water comes down on them, they could have, some of them could have swam, swum, swam to the islands. (laughs) Swum, no, they couldn't have swum, they swam. Uh, So they wouldn't have all drowned. But we're told in chapter 14, verse 28, that they all drowned. Then there is the third view, which is the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the right arm of the Red Sea, and that they crossed at a place called Nuwaiba Beach. Now, this crossing location would have put the Israelites out of Egyptian territory. Once they crossed, you see that little, where I have it circled, Nuwaiba Beach? Once they crossed over 10 miles, is all it is, across the Red Sea, and when they got on the other side, they would have been out of Egyptian territory because they would have been safely in the land of Midian. And that, by the way, is where the correct Mount Sinai is. A lot of people still have Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. It is not there. They, yes, they have a Catholic uh, church there or whatever um, but the real location is over here in Midian you remember Moses was in Midian when he encountered the burning bush all right so this new Weba beach there is only one entrance to that beach by the way the beach is large enough to hold two million people so because there's only one path to it through the mountains, and the mountains go straight up, you know, they're there, and then there's the beach, and then there's the water. There's only one path to that beach, and therefore the pillar of cloud would have, one pillar of cloud would have been sufficient to stand in protection as Israel on that beach then crossed over to the other side. The full name of that beach today in Arabic is Nuwaiba al-Muzayina, which means waters of Moses' opening. Now, amazingly, right at the location of Nuwaiba Beach, there is an underwater land bridge. The Israelites wouldn't have seen this because it was covered with many feet of water. But once the Lord divided the water, there was a natural land bridge there that went to the other side and the slope was very gentle down to it and they crossed 10 miles and then when they got to the other side there's a gentle slope back up onto the land you know this is why the waters are parted Um, on either side of that land bridge the the water it goes way deep on either side so they could never have crossed even with the waters opened if there had not been that land bridge, because they could not have gone way, and it's really rough and rugged, they couldn't have gone from the land down onto the dry bed of the river that deep down. You get? Are you following me? And crossed over. It would have been too much to take. They couldn't have taken their animals down there. The children would have tumbled, and the old people wouldn't have made it. So there's this natural land bridge, and it's wide enough for many people to cross at the same time. It's just like God, during the flood, he purposely built that there because he knew everything ahead of time. Furthermore, just recently, archaeologists have found that uh, two, two pillars, that one was actually laying on the Midian side, just down, no, you know, nobody really lives there too much, and they don't pay attention to things, archaeological things. 
but there was a pillar just laying in the sand, and these archaeologists looked at it and found that it had inscription on it. Well, there was one on the other side near Nuwaiba Beach and then uh, in Midian, in those two locations, they found these pillars that Solomon, King Solomon, had made those pillars and marked them as the place uh, where the, of the Red Sea crossing. Then, also in 1978, I don't know if you have seen the DVD, the Exodus Revealed. Remember years ago I showed that at Bible study. Some of you have been with us. But there's a wonderful DVD called The Exodus Revealed. I forgot to bring it. I was going to bring it from home. But they, uh, they did some deep sea diving and, and discovered numerous coral-encrusted chariot wheels found right there where we're talking about on that land bridge right across from Nuwaiba Beach. I mean, some of them, you look at, they, now they can't, they couldn't remove them because if they even touched them, they crumbled apart. But there's one chariot wheel that looks like it's gold. I wonder if it was Pharaoh's chariot wheel. It just shines. Uh, you know, they take pictures, underwater pictures, and it's, it, they are Egyptian. They know from the, the number of spokes, they know they're Egyptian, so they, and they found chariot boxes too. Um, all kinds of chariot wheels. There's one that, that even has the uh, axle of the chariot with the wheel here and the whole thing. You can see the shape of it, and it's encrusted in coral. The coral has preserved them. Otherwise, they would have disintegrated long ago. They have also found down there um, human skeleton, you know, bones, and horses' hooves. There's one... You can go home and Google this, okay? And you'll just be like me. Just, oh, it's fascinating to look at it. But there's one horse's hoof. It's just preserved as well as it could be in, in a jar. <laughs> They've got it in a jar. Um, so anyway, since 1978, they have had numerous other independent groups that have gone over there and scuba dived, and they, all of this has been confirmed. Now, what would Egyptian chariots be doing you know, in the bottom of the Gulf of Aqaba. Why would Solomon have put those? Why would it still be called the, the place of Moses' opening? You know, it just makes sense. To me, this is where they crossed the Red Sea. I am convinced about it. And I, most people are now going in this direction as well. Well, from a human standpoint, Israel's situation looked hopeless. I mean, she's got Pharaoh pursuing her on one end and then this <laughs> sea on the other. They did not understand, I am sure, why they had been led into what looked like a trap. Why would this amazing, miraculous pillar of cloud and pillar of fire lead us into a trap like this? Well, because he'd get more glory that way, wouldn't he? Exactly. But they were locked in between Pharaoh's army and the waters of the deep blue sea, except it was the deep red sea. <laughs> And in spite of all the recent evidence that they had had about God's mighty power displayed through the ten plagues, it tells us they were sore afraid. And uh, I would be too, and you would be too, because we didn't know there was a bridge and God was going to open up the water. So they're going, uh-oh, this is not looking good at all. And so they turn on Moses first time of many in the next 40 years, they turn on him in panic and they, in effect, say to him, and this is in verses 11 and 12, it would have been better for us to die as slaves in Egypt than to be free men here in the wilderness. 
wah, wah, wah. We should have stayed where we were. Why did you even bother to take us out of Egypt? So where is their faith in God? They're not shining too brightly at this point, are they? How could they have experienced all the amazing plagues which uh, spared them? I mean, that's pretty miraculous. They had light in their homes. Everything else was dark. How could they experience all that and, and see the glory of God's guiding pillar and yet not trust him? Well, it's just like you and I, really. You get right down to it. We have the whole Bible. We know everything he did, not just the plagues. We have all the other miracles, and still, don't we doubt him at times? Yes, yes, we sure do. This is really a testimony to the instability of faith that is built on miracles. You, you find someone who builds their faith on miracles. I have to see this, and I have to see that. You know, they're never satisfied. Because in time, you know, um, the miracle will fade and they want another miracle and then another miracle. Faith doesn't come by seeing, does it? It comes by hearing. Well, the reply of Moses to the complaints of the Israelites is a mountain peak statement of faith. This is worth memorizing. This is a statement that has brought comfort and encouragement to hundreds of thousands of God's people who need to stand firm in their faith during times of seemingly humanly impossible circumstances. When all looks like it's just lost and there's no way around this problem, we need to take Moses' advice here. And his response was this, fear ye not. That's where we begin, right? No, no, fear. Don't fear. And then he says, stand still. This is in verses 13 and 14. Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Those Israelites would never again see the Egyptian army or Pharaoh ever again. And then he said, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Yeah, he wished they would. <laughs> so his instructions to the terrified Israelites, that must have seemed remarkable. They were chased down. They were hemmed in by the most advanced fighting force probably in the whole world at that point in time. But rather than telling them, to flee, see if there's any way you can scale those mountains or get out of here. Any of you good swimmers, can you swim 20, 10 miles? Across? You know, instead of telling them to either flee or resist, to fight with every last ounce of strength they had, he, told, he tells them to neither flee nor fight, but to be fearless witnesses. Stand still and just be a fearless witness of God's saving power. Because he is going to fight the battle for you. Israel needs that advice today, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. And this is what's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon, too. He's going to fight the battle for them. It would be his victory and his victory alone. The people should have known by this point in time, they should have known that God would not send all those devastating plagues on Egypt just so then he, he could then subject his people to death. 
I mean, why go through all that trouble if he's just going to subject them to death or to even worse slavery than they had before they left Egypt? Because those who didn't die by the sword, they would take back to Egypt and they think if they thought they had it bad before, I can't imagine what they would have to do when they came back. So the Lord then told Moses to command the children of Israel to do something that was going to test their faith. He told them to go forward. Do you see that? Is that in verse 15? Go forward. In other words, start walking toward the water. Because if they did that, if they obeyed, that was good. Because they were demonstrating their faith in God's word through his prophet, through Moses. And Moses was told by the Lord that he was to lift up his rod. There's his staff again, still has it in his hand. He's to, to, to lift it up and stretch it out his hand over the sea so that it would divide and the people could cross through it in the midst of what kind of ground? Wet and soggy? Dry. That's part of the miracle, isn't it? Dry ground. So again, the staff of Moses, which both the Egyptians and the Israelites had learned to fear and to respect, was going to be God's instrument to perform a mighty miracle. And this is the mighty miracle of the Old Testament. It's the one that I always go back to. All the Old Testament writers always go back to this. Like in the New Testament, we go back to the cross. So uh, then in verse 17 and 18, the Lord said he would harden the heart, not only of Pharaoh, but he was going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians, the army, so that they would follow the Israelites when they crossed into the midst of the parted sea. And when they did that, the Lord said, when they did that, it wasn't going to take them very long before they would learn, it would be their last dying thought, that he, the Lord, is the Lord. They would learn that he is the Lord. You think they got that as they're drowning? Mm. Then the angel of God, who is the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, who was with his people in the form of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, went behind them. Now it says he goes behind them. And before he was leading them, he's the one who led them into that dilemma. Now he goes behind them to form a, a barrier of cloudy darkness on the Egyptian side. So where Pharaoh is, he can't see. It's nighttime anyway, but there's this big cloud, you know, obstructing that one way to the beach, and they can't really see what's going on on the other side. Well, what's going on on the other side is that Israel is escaping by night. It would take her one night to get across 10 miles. Uh, But on their side, it's the pillar of fire. Giant pillar of fire is like a giant flashlight in the sky so that they can see their way across. You see how he thought of everything? He thought of everything. So that's where he positions himself. And the floor of the sea is made dry and the waters were divided. And Israel went forth on dry ground with great walls of high water congealed water on both sides of their path i want you to look over at chapter 15 verse 8 because i had not noticed this before but it made me laugh when i read it this is a song moses wrote after they were safely on the other side 
We're going to talk about it at the end of this lesson, but he says, if you'll notice at the end of that verse, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. So what he is picturing, and he was there, he was an eyewitness, is that when those waters divided, they were like (laughs) jello, congealed jello, you know, probably kind of even wiggly. (laughs) But isn't that a good picture? Can't you picture that? like jello up on both sides so that they can walk across you know the same power the very same power that commanded a firmament in other words atmosphere to divide the waters on earth on creation day number two and then on day number three to gather the waters of the earth into seas so that dry land appeared That same power also divided the waters of the Red Sea. You know, easy peasy. (laughs) After what he did in the creation week. And in his incarnation, that very same power named Jesus Christ revealed himself, identified himself as the creator, as the one who divided the Red Sea, when he calmed the waters of a stormy sea with a very simple command, Peace be still. Hold it. Water and instant calm, right? And on another occasion, he showed his creative power and his sovereign godhood when he walked across the top of a very stormy sea to get to his distraught disciples out in their vessel. They thought they were going to drown, and he just comes walking right across the waves. Amazing, isn't it? Who was he? Who is he? You know, if you're God... It's no big problem to open up water and make it like jello, is it? No. You don't have to make up things like the sea of reeds and, and swamp. If, if, if you believe in the beginning God, you believe anything. And there were plenty of witnesses. And there's witnesses still there today. Those chariot wheels are witnesses. Well, when the Egyptian army of chariots uh, and the horsemen led by their very foolish king, presumptuously entered onto the Lord's miracle highway. That was what you call the miracle highway, right? And I think if I had been them, and after seeing the ten plagues and losing all the firstborns, blah, 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 when you saw the Lord do that for Israel so she could cross over, do you think you would enter into it? No, I don't think I would either. But that's why I said presumptuously. They entered on his highway. And uh, I want you to read this. Look at verse 24. Read this with me. Look at verse 24. And it says, and it came, well, we'll go back to 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea. God waited till they got to the middle. (laughs) Even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, okay, now it's early, early morning. The Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the clouds. See, he's, he is the pillar. of, And so he's looking down at them through that pillar. And then look at this. And troubled the host of the Egyptians. The Lord decided he was going to give them some trouble. You know what he did? He gave them flat tires. <laughs> look at the next verse. And took off their chariot wheels. <laughs> Isn't, doesn't he have a great sense of humor? Really? I mean, how would you stop them? Well, first of all, I wonder if he didn't turn the dry ground suddenly to soggy, muddy ground. 
and their chariot wheels got bogged down, started sinking, and then they came, you know, started coming off. That's why there's so many chariot wheels dismantled from the axles and everything down there. Because, and then without the chariots, they can't drive. Well, it tells us that the Egyptians, they realized what was happening and they tried to turn back. They tried to turn around and go and get out of there. It says in verse 25, they wanted to flee. They should have thought of this before, but they wanted to flee from the face of Israel because they realized that the Lord is on their side. When in the world is Hamas and Hezbollah and all the uh, Iranians who want to um, annihilate Israel and all her enemies, the anti-Semites, when are they going to realize? When are they going to realize that the Lord is on Israel's side? Yes. So they, they did, they did, they're in the middle of the Red Sea and they find, hey, light bulb, God is on their side. What are we doing here? <laughs> so they did realize it. He said they would realize I am the Lord, but it was too late, wasn't it? It was too late. Well, the Lord, because it's too late because the Lord then told Moses, lift up that staff again. And when Moses lifts up the staff, you know it's trouble. <laughs> and so he stretches out the staff over the Red Sea. And when he did, the seas returned to their strength. Verse 27. And even though those, can you imagine, tons and tons of water come crushing, rushing down on them, they didn't stand a chance. And it says that covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. You see that verse 28? So did Pharaoh die? Did Pharaoh die? It certainly sounds like it. When you uh, read Exodus 15, 19, go over there. It says, for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. Now, I can't imagine, even though I read commentaries and people that say Pharaoh didn't die, um, why would he send his horse in without him? Why would his horse go in without him? <laughs> we know his horse went in and didn't make it. Also in 1428, it says, as we just read, that not one remained who went into the sea. And then there's also the words of Psalm 136, verse 15, which tell us that Pharaoh and his host were overthrown in the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his host. So if you ask me, I'd say, yes, Pharaoh perished in the Red Sea. That might be his gold chariot wheel down there. Well, the Red Sea crossing chapter ends with uh, the Lord saying the Lord saved Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. The bodies were washed up on the seashore. More importantly, Israel saw that great work that the Lord had done on her behalf and she both feared and believed him and his servant Moses. The Red Sea crossing, now here's where I get to this thing I grew up here, is <clears throat> the death and the resurrection part of the Exodus gospel. The gospel given to us in the book of Exodus, in the Exodus of Israel. First of all, we had the death part of the gospel because the gospel is 
a trinity, isn't it? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We had the death part of the Exodus gospel in the death of the Passover lamb, whose sinless shed blood was the redemption, you know, gave the redemption, made possible the redemption for the death of all firstborns. It was the typological picture of the one who would come as the once for all true Passover lamb to take away the sins of every firstborn ever born, which is all of us. We know, we know that. So the Passover in Egypt, that was a picture of the death part of the gospel, the death of Christ. And then after the death of all the Passover lambs and Israel's exodus, her exit from Egypt, we find out, as we did today, that matters still looked very bleak for Israel. When the king of Egypt, who could never be trusted... Would you put your trust in that man, the Pharaoh? No, just like should you put your trust in Satan? He is a picture of Satan. He's a picture of the Antichrist as well. Well, he changed his mind. He decided his battle with the God of the Hebrews was not yet over. Satan decided even after the cross that his battle wasn't. He's still fighting his battle even though, you know, it's set in stone that he's going to perish and be thrown into the lake of fire forever and yet he won't give up and so just like pharaoh um i mean just like satan pharaoh pursued israel she was yet within the bounds of egypt right just like when jesus was buried he was still here on in egypt wasn't he so israel's still within egyptian territory which extended all the way through the Sinai Peninsula. Humanly speaking, it looked like all was lost for Israel. She was doomed. She was hemmed in between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. She would not, it doesn't look like she's going to experience a new birth as a nation. She would either die by the sword or she would drown in the sea. And those who weren't lost would be returned to Egypt as slaves, you know, back into their bondage. It was in the darkness of night when Israel, by faith in Moses' promise not to fear, but to see the Lord's salvation, was in the darkness of night that she went down into the waters of the Red Sea. It was a daunting sight for her to see those gigantic walls of congealed water on both sides. Um, and to walk across what should have been a very soggy pathway. It was miraculous, but it didn't look very inviting. I mean, who? it took faith to walk between those huge walls of water because at any moment, I mean, for all she knew, uh, those waters could come collapsing down. But Moses said, go forward, and she did. Surprisingly, those waters did not result in her death. She emerged free on the other side. She was free from the king, and she was free from the kingdom of Egypt. It's what we could call a resurrection. She, her enemy was totally defeated, and she could now experience a new, new life of liberty. And she would be divinely guided and supernaturally sustained every step of the way until she crossed again the Jordan into the promised land. That's like heaven, okay? She was guided all the way by the pre-incarnate Christ himself in a cloud. He sustained her by his provision of spiritual meat. What was that spiritual meat? Manna from heaven. He provided for her with spiritual drink. Where did that come from? 
The Rock. Oh, in Midian. Oh, I, I just get sidetracked, but they they have found the rock that he split. And when you see it, you, there's no doubt about it. That is the rock he split and water came out. But that's another story. It was discovered by the Caldwells missionary couple over there named the Caldwells. I can't wait till we get to the rock because it's really exciting. I'll show you a picture of it. Maybe I'll learn PowerPoint and we'll have a picture. All right. So anyway, he provided them with spiritual meat and spiritual drink, which were precursors to the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, which represented his great sacrifice. He was, Jesus is the fulfillment of both the true manna from heaven, isn't he? And he is the rock from which came, when it was struck, smitten once, he died once for all, he was smitten once, from him came forth living water, which is representative of the Holy Spirit. It's all typology, isn't it? Christology in the Old Testament. So the Exodus Lamb, the Red Sea Crossing, um, and Israel's miraculous guidance and provision in the wilderness were all confirmed to us in the New Testament as being Christological. We already talked about how Paul said Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. There's no doubt he was the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. But Paul also confirmed that uh, uh, the, the Exodus, the Red Sea Crossing, and the wilderness provision were Christological when he wrote 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4, Moreover, brethren... I'm going to go into AFib if I have to keep talking this fast. He said... <laughs> Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, that's speaking of Christ in the pillar of cloud, and all passed through the sea and were baptized. See, the Red Sea is like the baptism. It's like going down into death like Christ did for three days when he was in the tomb. They were all baptized unto Moses. And Moses is a picture of Christ. In the cloud and in the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat, manna, and all did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So this typology is confirmed to us in the New Testament. The Red Sea represented the waters of baptism, which are the believer's public, public testimony of his or her identification with Christ and what he did, what he did for us by going down into the deep waters of death and then rising from the dead on the other side resurrecting from the dead, making our resurrection a sure thing because he's the first fruits and there's guaranteed to follow. Rising out of that dried bit of the sea into new freedom in the land of Midian was for Israel like a resurrection. And resurrected people have a new song in their heart. Did the Lord take you out of that pit and set and out of the miry clay and put your feet upon a rock named Christ and put a new song in your heart? He did for me. I remember when I got saved so vividly, I was driving along. I thought, wow, the sky is pretty. Never noticed how beautiful it is. And I couldn't, I, I can't, I'm not a very good singer, but I was singing. He put a new song in my heart. Well, that's what he did here. And uh, what we have next is the oldest hymn in the scripture. And it was written by Moses, and it was probably the first thing he ever penned because he hasn't written the book of Genesis yet or Exodus or Leviticus and Numbers Deuteronomy. First thing he wrote was a song. And can you imagine the thrilling experience it must have been for him to then lead a choir of some two million people 
In this song that he had written, what a mighty glorification of the one who had redeemed them from such hopeless, helpless bondage and seeming death. The Song of Solomon, chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. A few things, I'm not going to go through it, but a few things I do want to point out is that there is not one word in this song called the Song of Moses, not one word that calls attention to him, to Moses, or to the people. The theme, the main theme of the entire song is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. You notice Lord is all capitals, it's Yahweh. The entire song gives glory to the Lord. Songs that glorify the Lord are to be Christ-centered, not man-centered. That's why I love the old hymns. So many of the modern-day praise songs, if you not all of them, but some, a lot of them are man-centered. If you read the words what he you know for me it's all about me but the great old hymns always glorify the lord also all glory should go to god i'm going to get on my little soapbox the glory should go to god not to the singer when you leave and you're focused on the singer or the performers or the atmosphere that is set there instead of the lord if your heart I mean, the singers should almost just disappear in your mind and your heart and mind should be focused on the Lord and giving him glory and lifting him up. Not the, not the singers. And that's the way it should be. We've gotten away from that. We're imitating the world and our music that we have brought into the church. In the song, he goes on to, you know, get to, to talk about the progress of, of events that led to Israel's complete deliverance. And it kind of rehearses everything that, that had happened. He speaks about the Lord's right hand, about his excellency, his wrath, being instruments of his righteous judgment. And then, as we already read, the wind that blew across the Red Sea. By the way, God, it was, it's called the nostrils of God. He says the, the blast of God's nostrils is what divided the sea. You know, he just blew out his nose. I better not do that. That could be dangerous. But, <laughs> um, but somebody said that it was an east-west wind. And it blew across a north-south Red Sea, and so it formed a cross. That's kind of interesting. Well, and then in verses 11 to 18 of this song of Moses, we find the contemplation of the Lord's blessings led Moses to center on his person. So he said, you know, who is like unto the Lord? Who is like unto the Lord? Anyone? No. And uh, he talks about his promises, and then he talks about the worthlessness of Egypt's false gods and goddesses and the foolishness of those who worship them. So the Passover... The Passover may have resulted, and it did result, in Egypt letting Israel go. But the Red Sea crossing caused her future enemies, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Edomites, the mighty men of Moab, to tremble and melt away. That's what Moses says in there somewhere. I don't have the verse. 15, okay, 15, 15. <laughs> All the enemies, when they hear about this, they're going to melt away. They're going to tremble. Now, at that moment in time, the Israelites were absolutely confident that their potential future enemies um, would become weak in their knees with fear, and they would be very easy to overcome. I wish they had stayed that way, don't you? Here, they're very confident because they have just had this miracle. You know, so they say, we can conquer our enemies. We'll just go right into the promised land. And he talks, here's Moses as a prophet, verses 16 to 17, because he says, when they go into the land, 
Um, the Lord is going to be planted in his mountain of inheritances. He's talking about uh, Mount Zion. He's going to have a place to dwell in, a sanctuary. He's going to establish his sanctuary, which would be the temple in Jerusalem, where he, he would dwell with his people and where we will worship him. These verses looked ahead to the establishment of the temple. So, you know, Moses is a prophet. He's called a prophet because he was being prophetic here. Then in verse 18, he acknowledges the eternality of the Lord when he says he's going to reign forever and ever. And the song was likely the first words that he ever penned, and he did it so the people and their descendants could sing this song as a memorial of praise to God. Interestingly, if you look at Revelation 15, this is Exodus 15, if you look at Revelation 15, um, there is a song we're going to be singing together in heaven, and it is called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. The Song of Moses and the Lamb. And uh, we better start practicing because we're going to be singing it throughout eternity. Then in verse 20, we hear from someone we hadn't heard from in a long time, Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Last time we heard from her, she was rescuing her little three-month-old baby from the Nile River. Now we hear, we hear about her, and it says she took up a timbrel, which is like a tambourine, and she organizes the women into a chorus, and they sing the refrain which the song opened with. In verse 1, they sing that refrain, and they're joyously dancing, and she's beating her tambourine, and she's dancing, and she's happy, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. She is the first um, music minister, female music minister in the Bible. <laughs> and guess what? Can you picture her hopping around? You know how old she is? Almost 90. Wow. wow. She's almost 90 years old. So... Young, and she's also called a prophetess. So she's the first female prophetess in the Bible. Young and old, male and female, Jewish and Gentile, they're all united in rendering a mighty chorus of praise and honor and thanksgiving to the one who had redeemed them. That's how it's going to be in heaven. You know, all the redeemed of the Lord, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your, your race. We all come from the human race, right? It doesn't matter your sex, your gender, your whatever. We're all going to be singing together, Old Testament, New Testament. And we'll never grow tired of singing. And I'll be able to sing in tune. <laughs> and you too. So the Red Sea battle was Israel's first military victory over an enemy army. And you know what? Not one weapon was raised. Hmm? It's a picture of complete reliance on the Lord to fight our battles for us. Would you remember that? Would you? Would you remember? Let the Lord, whatever battle you're going through, just fear not, stand still, be quiet. That's hard. And let him fight the battle for you, and you will see the salvation of the Lord. He'll do it. Whatever it is, he'll do it. Yes. Now, I want to close with a poem I wrote, uh, actually a song I wrote. If anyone wants to put it to music, go at it. It's called The Song of Moses and the Lamb. Isn't that original? I stole that. I plagiarized. I will sing unto the Lord whose triumph was for me. I will sing unto the Lord my praise for Calvary. The Lord's my strength and song. He's my salvation, too. And what he did for me... He also did for you. Great and wondrous are his works. True and righteous are his ways. King of saints, to thee alone, I lift my song of praise. 
Who dares not fear thee, O my Lord, or glorify thy name? One day all men to thee will bow, thy lordship to proclaim. Weep not, O earth, for Christ the Lamb stands now before God's throne to bring to you the liberty for which you long and groan. He will deliver this cursed world from Satan and his beasts, and all the saints of old and new will share his kingdom feasts. Christ was slain and hast redeemed from every tongue and race, a people for himself like me, saved by his mighty grace. Will you please join me as I sing to our most worthy lamb, the Christ who Moses also praised, the eternal great I am. Amen. No, 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 no. I want to very quickly honor one of our leaders. This is so sad. I just can't stand it. Sylvia Shellhammer. This is her last day with us, and she has been a leader, we think, for 11 years. She doesn't know, but I think, I think that's what, at least 11 years, she has been one of our fearless leaders. She's moving to Tampa, Florida, so... Um, you know, remember that when you go on vacation to Florida? <laughs> uh, she will promise, she promised to come back and visit us from time to time because her family is here. But we're saying goodbye to her and we have a little gift for you. Uh, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. And we love you and we thank you for your faithfulness. She is a woman of God and I know her light is going to go with her where she goes. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you again for all the richness we find in typology. Thank you for the exodus of old and the exit that we can have and experience today when we are born again. And the exit one day we will have when we leave this world and go into your presence and sing (laughs) forever. We'll do so many other things, but part of it will be singing. And we look forward to that. And I ask that, Father, you would be with Wanda, our dear leader Wanda today, and that as she sees the doctor, she will get good news. We pray for her, Lord. Victory, we are turning over to you. You're going to be victorious in her life. And we pray for our dear sister Sylvia. I know she'll take her light with her. When she goes to Florida, she'll be a witness there. I pray that they find a good, solid church they can serve in. And that she will enjoy her retirement years, retirement from the Living Word Ladies Bible Study. And um, perhaps find another Ladies Bible Study where she can share all that she has learned. I know she is a teacher herself, but just use her in the future and guide her, be with her, and help her never forget how much we love her. Now go with every woman and uh, protect her and her family from the evil one. Bring us back safely in two weeks to enjoy the Passover Seder, and again, to learn more about how Christ is in everything, everything, because he is all in all, and we pray in his name. Amen.